Hello and welcome to another Empire Spoiler Special, this one devoted to Season 1 of Netflix's The Sandman, based of course on the absolutely gangbuster series of comics by, by Neil Gaiman and others. And so today we are going to be talking all about Dream of the Endless, about Morpheus, about Ineros, about The Sandman, about Kaikul, about Lord Elzeril, um, about The King of Dreams, about The Prince of Stories, about The Lord Shaper. Uh, and with me to do so are my two favourite dreams, or perhaps nightmares. It's Dan Jolin. Hey, good morning. And Amon Warman. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just flabbergasted at the fact that Dream clearly looked at Gandalf with all his names and was like, hold my beer. Because, wow, the man has got some names. A lot of names. Pick one. I mean, look. Gandalf's only been around for, what, four or five thousand years? You know, Dream has had literally millions of years to pick up all these names. It's a surprise, frankly, he hasn't got more. <laughs> Do you have a favourite of the 575? <laughs> I, like, I like the Lord Shaper. I think that's a very cool name. How about you, Dan? Favourite name? Well, I think, I think all the best names begin with D, so um, <laughs> I'm just going to go with Dream. That's that's the best name. Although I do like I do like the Oniromancer, which yeah. which 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 is something I also would like to be known as. Yeah, we'll we'll work on that, Dan. Um, definitely. Let me just type that up and and uh, note to self: call Dan the Oniromancer in future. Sure, definitely going to happen. Um, l- let me ask you just just to situate ourselves before we get started. What is your relationship to? The Sandman before this. I mean, we've obviously all seen all 11 episodes with the bonus episode that was released last week. And if you haven't seen that, do go away and watch it. It came out two weeks after everything else. Um, but we will be discussing that as well as everything else. But um, So we've seen all of those. But how much did you know about the show first? I'm going to come to Amon first and then Dan, because I feel like your answers are going to be of differing lengths. So <laughs> let's get one out of the way. Whatever gave you that impression, Helen? Um, <laughs> no. Uh, I surprisingly, being the comics fan that I am, did not read the Sandman comics before watching this show. I've actually come <sighs> at it backwards. I'm, I'm still watching, or still watch, I'm still reading the Sandman comics because I delved into them after watching the show. Um, so yeah, that, that was my relationship to it. Uh, and I'm one of the things that is really great about the show is that even with all the exposition that the show has to get through for newcomers, I found my way through it fairly easily. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Dan, how about you? I'm kind of envious of Amon uh, (laughs) because I am the exact opposite of him. And I'm envious of Amon because, and I'll I'll answer the question in a moment, but I'm envious of Amon because whilst watching the show for the first time, and I've seen it a lot, um, but whilst watching it for the first time, I just thought, I, I, I want to know what this must be like for someone who doesn't know anything about the Sandman, because I bet it's brilliant. Whereas, whereas I have all this kind of baggage, but it's not bad baggage, but it is baggage. And that's because I bought issue one, the month issue one came out. I bought issue two, the month issue two came out. I bought every issue for the entire run, every month it came out. Even when I went to university, I found a new comic shop in Leeds. I went to them and I went, you know, you've got to, got to sign me up for this. It was like, I've just got to be Sandman. It's got to be Hellblazer. It's got to be Shade the Changing Man. You know, these were my, these were my comics. Uh, so, so yeah. And, and it, it, the Lord Shaper helps shape me. What can I say? Um, it's part of my cultural DNA. It's as important to me as Star Wars or, uh, Marvel um it's it's absolutely part of who i am and i love it beyond belief and i've reread the entire run several times half a dozen times probably i all the, all the original comics are stashed somewhere at my mother-in-law's house um and i've got all the absolute sandmans the leather bound big ones same, and i should probably same. stop there because we need to talk about the <laughs> wow. show at some point. So, yeah. so um, I'm going to leave it there. But that's who I am. I am, I am, the, I am the goth nerd. I was that gothy kid, that gothy kid who just went, this is for me. I wanted to, I wanted to paint death on the back of my leather jacket. Right? That's, that's, that's who I was. I didn't do it in the end. 
That's I, a terrifying I, I, prospect. Yeah. Mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, just, just to situate myself, I'm very much more at the Dan end of the spectrum. Um, I first read these not quite 20 years ago, I think. I was already living in London, I know that much, um, because I actually read them in a bookshop, um, which was very kind and didn't kick me out. I wanted to know that they were good enough before I bought the Absolutes, which were just coming on sale at the time. And then I bought the four Absolutes and yes, Neil Gaiman signed one of them and drew a little dream in it for me. Um, So I'm very proud of them. And they are honestly one of the things I would get out of my house if the building were on fire. Um, So so yeah, I I, I love them and I've probably reread them, if not yearly, pretty close to yearly ever since. I have to put a giant cushion on my knee before those books are heavy, man. Those absolutes, they are freaking heavy. So you need like a cushion on your lap and then the book on the cushion in order to be able to read them. But um, but yeah, I absolutely love it. I had very, very high hopes for this series and and uh and and a certain amount of terror that they would screw it up so what did you think overall um like headline takes on this show dan Dan, let's start with you because obviously you had most skin in the game yeah yeah i actually had a difficult time with it to begin with uh i'm going to be completely honest about this i mean not a very difficult time I, i loved it because it was based on stuff i loved but i found it very hard to disassociate what i was watching on screen from what i already know so I was constantly picking apart everything in my head going, so they made this decision. And that's interesting. I like that decision. I'm also keen on this decision. And, you know, I'm just talking about even the basics of how they chose to retell the story. So, so I needed to almost get like a watch out of the way where I was thinking that. And then, a, a, and then just have a rewatch where I'd kind of flushed my mind. So I've seen Preludes and Nocturnes three times now and The Doll's House twice. Um, and, and the bonus episode once. Um, so I can safely say, I think it's an amazing adaptation after I've kind of got all that stuff out of the way. Also, sorry, just to show off slightly, I was one of the first people in the world to see episode one back in January. Um, cause you did the Empire a, feature, didn't you? Yeah. And they showed it to me super early. And even Neil Gaiman himself said to me, he said, I think you're the only person who hasn't been involved in the making of Sandman to see, uh, episodes one, three, and I think it was four. I can't remember now, but anyway, and and it was it was kind of odd because they were works in progress. It wasn't quite finished. It was a different cut. So he released a deleted scene recently. That was part of it when I watched it, and the pacing was wasn't great. And they made all the right decisions in the cuts that they made. It had a different voiceover at the beginning. Lucien did the voiceover at the beginning, not Morpheus. It was all kind of the you know. So so it, it was interesting to see the changes they made. So there was that hurdle kind of a hurdle as well but you know i'm a pro i can take it but to to finish the points because i realize i'm going on again too much to finish the point i i abs- i think it's a masterful adaptation i absolutely love it and it's been joyful absolutely joyful watching people i'm guessing and hoping like amon because i haven't heard what he thinks yet and my son max who is who is actually only 12 but but is i i think was ready for it and absolutely loves it and Lucy, although she did read the comic books, but she's not as into them as me. So my wife, I should say, so, you know, just watching other people watch it and enjoy it and seeing it just become huge. It's just, just, just great. It warms my heart and it's, it's, it's kind of made, it's made my summer. Right, I'm on. I absolutely Quick. hated it, Dan. This is an awful it. show. <laughs> I mean, oh my God. Um, no, no, no. I, I really, really liked it. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I think... It's partially because I've watched so many TV shows on Netflix and they tend to do this, that after the first episode, I sort of got it in my brain that, okay, this is going to be a 10 episode series where the bulk of it is going to be spent watching Morpheus get his gear back. That is sort of what the setup in my mind is going to be. I was so impressed and so happy to find that that wasn't the case. I think I messaged you, Hannah, like around episode four. Like, this thing is moving. He's already got all his gear back. That's like one episode per item, essentially. I really, really love that. Um, and, you know, I, I was really getting into it on that level. I think the supporting uh, characters in those first uh, five or six episodes are really, really good. And then I'm sure we're going to get into this more because it's one of the best things I've watched in anything all year. But episode six happens. That episode is phenomenal that that is one like episode five is really really good um in its own right um 
But for episode six, like, given that Dream is the main character, given that he's the one that you're following, that is when it really, really clicked for me. Episode five, Dream is in it, but it's mainly about David Thewlis, who is fantastic, and we'll talk about that more, I'm sure. Uh, but that is the one where it's like, okay, I'm in love with this show now. And episode seven to ten, I think it it's, it's a little bit more middling for me, given sort of the new characters and the new story that it's telling within within that thing. I didn't like it as much as the opening six but it's still really really strong and yeah i hope it gets a season two i think i think at this point apparently it's the most streamed show in the world right now so i hope we can assume that season two is is in the bag or you know is definitely going to happen um because if not like what is success if 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 you know massive eyes on and positive reviews pretty much across the board as far as i can tell isn't enough um i'm sure this is an expensive show uh, but at the same time I was really interested actually by the bonus episode. I was really, really interested by what they did with the Dream of Cats because I feel like uh, one criticism of the show that I read uh, on, I think, the Daily Dot that I, I had a certain amount of sympathy with was that it hadn't been quite formally daring enough to match the source material. The source material takes some big swings. Famously, the covers were incredibly controversial at the time because they didn't always have Dream on them. And even when they did, he's always... He's not always obvious because it's a Dave McKean cover and he doesn't really do obvious. Um, so, so you know, they, these were daring comics. They took a lot of risks. They would they would have these, like you saw in, in a few episodes already, these stories where Dream barely features or features as a sort of supporting character. And yet they all sort of add to the whole and they all end up playing a part in, in where this is going, which we won't spoil, obviously, for anybody who's just watching the TV show. So I really kind of want to see a level of daring to kind of match that in the TV show. And I think when you start to get into kind of the, the animation and I think rotoscoping of A Dream of Cats, you see, oh, we, maybe there's room to do some kind of different stuff here. Maybe there's room to really kind of take some risks. And, you know, a show like this does risk getting very CG heavy, getting really unattached from the world. And I think if you do things like that, you lean into that aspect, but simultaneously bring it back to the real world in a really weird way. Um, you know, things like shooting um, Cain and Abel's houses in a real location, I think, was a good one. That gave it a little bit of grounding, even in the dreaming. And I think you, you need that sometimes. Uh, they did say that, you know, even the heart of the dreaming, even Dream's throne room, is, uh, is a physical set for the most part, obviously with, you know, space added. Um, but at the same time, you want... You want a bit of mixing it up, or I do anyway. And so I hope that this kind of emboldens them to do more of that in the future. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I love that uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats uh, segment, shall we say. Um, I thought that worked really well, and I thought it was it was absolutely the right way to go. I also love the... Now, I've got to get the pronunciation right, because I always said Calliope when I read it in Calliope. my head. But it's Calliope. <laughs> I mean, who yeah. knew? And it's Constantine. Constantine. I mean, you know, why, honestly, why can't the rest of the world get with the way I say things in my head? Honestly. Calliope, what's that? Anyway, so Calliope. Um, and, but again, and I love the way you've kind of got the, you, you've got the arcs. And this goes back to the comic books. This is what, the, this is what Gaiman did in the comics. You've got the big arcs. You've got the big storylines. But then you've also got these little vignettes, these one-off, one-shots. Which which work really well as like episodes of Tales of the Unexpected or something like that. So the Calliope episode that could have been you know uh, whatever a tale of the unexpected or, or or whatever. I mean maybe not a Black Mirror, but you know what I mean. So it could have been something like that, and it works perfectly well. But then in that you've planted seeds of other storylines. There, there were there were references. Obviously, no spoilers for Amon and for. For for, for for people like Amon, of which there are many, and we love them. Um, we love you uh, too, Dan. Yeah, but there are <laughs> seeds there of really important things that are going to happen. So it's it's a show where you've got to pay attention, even if you think you're watching a little one-off. I mean, Dream of a Thousand Cats, less so. But again, it's just such a neat idea to leave you with, isn't it? That it's your cats so are dreaming that is of destroying of my... you. Yeah, it's one of my all-time favourite bit episodes of the comic. I just, I just adore the Dream of a Thousand Cats because it does make me a little bit worried, just a little bit. Um, and and I think it's wonderful. But yes, there there was a big 
hint to the future uh, dropped by Calliope in that episode. So do do pay attention. We won't get into it here because I think that's going to be part of season, maybe not two. It depends how fast they go. Three. Season three. I think um, three, three or four, you reckon? Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I think that it's got a bit of time to go. We will see some of these characters again. Um, we will also see some of the threads that have been kind of left hanging this time come back into play. Dream mentioned knowing uh, Lady Joanna uh, when he met Constantine in the present day. And this is not their only encounter. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that. So there, there's some stuff. Sorry, there's some stuff that's going to happen. Is it not Constantine? Oh. Constantine, yeah, yeah. I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah. I can't keep it straight in my head. <laughs> but, but again, with that reference to Lady Joanna and seeing her before, that ties in to the stuff that was being talked about in Calliope. It does. It connects. Yeah, it does, yeah. If, again, but if As, we're, we're, we're going outside the realm of the spoiler going podcast for True. the show. So let's, I'm really trying to hold that in. I'm really trying to hold that in. But yeah, you've got like references to, for example, there's a, two references, three references to the prodigal. You know, yes. uh, so so you kind of like you, we've been gradually introduced to the family, and we're in there with with delirium and destiny have been mentioned, but not but seen. not introduced. Yes, despair seen briefly. Obviously, desire a big player. Death had her episode in a bit or half half an episode, and my god, wasn't she amazing? And and but there's the prodigal, and I'm not going to say who the prodigal is, but. If you haven't seen it, you haven't read it, or anything like that, just have a think about what else begins with D. <laughs> I'm on. This is just so funny to me because I feel like this is a complete role reversal. Normally, I'm the guy who's read all the comics and is coming out with all the references, and today, that is not the case. So it's like, is this how I must seem to everybody else when I'm doing like this? This is, this is incredible. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's really really interesting, you know, delving into the comics after watching the show, because, you know, I've I'm doing a lot of reading around not, not just with the comics, but sort of reading other, other people's takes on that, and I do agree in that a number of, if not almost all of the best ideas in the show can be directly traced back to the comics, and I get why the show went in this direction in a sense because the comic is clearly so good. Um, but I would hope that, you know, when I think of the MCU and what they've done, they've used the comics as more of an inspiration rather than a direct translation text to text. And I would like to see more of that in future seasons to really sort of help different. And to a point in with the show, it's already different because of what they're doing with bringing it to life, the people who they're casting to do that, bringing it into a contemporary context. All of that makes it a little bit different. But in terms of just a pure narrative thing, it really does feel like like to like. And again, I like a lot of that translation because the comic is so good. And the but I I would like them to switch that up a little bit more going forward. Okay, but, but here's the problem with that. And I, I look, I'm not saying don't make any changes. They already have made some, and I think they've basically been for the better. So, for example, having the Corinthian play a bigger role as a sort of antagonist uh, through season one, I think was it was a great idea. Give it much more of a through thread. Having I think Desire play a lot of that role going forward which Desire always does because they are a dick um, <laughs> and presumably also a cunt. Um, it makes sense. <laughs> that that works really well and ties things together for me. That's great. My issue with playing fast and loose in the way that the MCU does is that this isn't a comic in the way the MCU is based on comics. This is a narrative with a, a beginning, um, a lot of middles and an end. <laughs> gotcha. So this has a, th a place that it needs to end up. And it will need almost all of these pieces to get to that place. So there is much, this is more a Lord of the Rings, the movies, than what I think we're going to get in Lord of the Rings, the TV show, for example. This is more of a Watchmen than an MCU. Gotcha. So okay. that's, that's, I think, that's, I think, the, the constraint on that, that criticism. And, and, and actually, another thing to pick up on what the, the, you were saying, Amon, which is, which is an interesting point about about the casting changes and about the update, the updating of it and everything. What's really interesting, and I think quite a lot has been said about this, and certainly in, in, in the Empire feature, um, it, it was mentioned, but 
actually they haven't had to update as much as you think that they might. You know, Desire was non-binary in the comic book originally. Um, there were people of colour in historical contexts in the uh, comic originally. And um, uh, the, yeah, trans characters and gay characters and, you know, and and it was it was actually really really interesting going back and rereading the entire run earlier this year which i did uh in january and february and i'm rereading it and just just with that in mind and thinking my gosh you know, i didn't really this didn't register with me when i was a teenager reading this but it must have seeped in somehow you know i i i don't know if Sorry, I'm not. I don't know if it was to, to any great benefit for myself or or, or for culture as a whole, but I do, I do kind of feel like like it's very important to look at the original and recognise that it did that and that it was ahead of its time, and and I think that's part of the reason why the time is right now in a way because all of the you know idiotic <laughs> Hollywood attitudes that would have that would have you know uh, whitewashed it or straightwashed it or however you want to put it if it had happened in the 90s or whatever, or even last decade, um, haven't happened now. So, so that is great to see in terms of preserving aspects of what made it so great. But I, like Helen, I agree. I really like the tweaks and the touches and the changes they made. So we promised to talk about David Thewlis. I mean, the, the changing of John D is really interesting. Obviously, the disassociation from the DC universe, because... The, in its early years, Sandman was a little bit more plugged into the DC uh, continuum, shall we say, and they've obviously had to unplug it. The change to Constantine is 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 obvious, and there are other good reasons to do that. Seeing as there is a TV show called Constantine slash Constantine, um, so but yeah, it, it, I, I I thought that the changes they made were really interesting. So coming back to Theulis, I I think what they did with John D was great. You know the way they kind of honed and 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 fine-tuned that character was really interesting because in the comic book he's not his preoccupation in the david thulis incarnation is people lying people not being truthful you know and that really bugs him and that really annoys him to a psychotic degree whereas in the comic book he's just a big crazy horrible psycho you know it's 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 so i think whatever heinberg slash goya uh uh Sorry, Alan Heinberg, showrunner, David Goyer, executive producer, slash showrunner, did with Gaiman's original material, um, was, was really smart there, really good there. I really like that. Yeah. I, I, and I think as well, I mean, th- those kind of changes do seem to have given, you know, the actors maybe more to play with, especially David Thewlis, because he is fucking great in that in that episode well i mean you know he's, he obviously appears a little bit before that but he's absolutely off the charts good i did have some tiny quibbles about the updates just in terms of timeline timeline unity kincaid doesn't look a hundred i mean she really doesn't and she would have to be and and i realize there's maybe timey-wimey stuff because she's been you know, the dreaming sleeping sickness but it you know that didn't ring a hundred percent true to me uh, equally there's clearly been uh, a, a, a sort of block on natasha richardson aging um because of the amulets but you know you you you've cast a younger woman as the mother of an, an older man again hollywood you know just do we have to anyway um they so, so that explained was, that in the narrative though they I, did I they did that one. that one i can somewhat forgive um but the unity kincaid stuff really actually did kind of stop me in my tracks a bit i'm like that woman's 100 she looks 65, maybe, you know, so uh, I did, there was a little bit of a thing there. <laughs> There's an obvious joke to make here. I, I uh, know you're thinking it. I know you're thinking it. Still a hundred, though. Yeah, yeah. Plus. <laughs> there's, there's, there's also, I mean, if we're talking about the things that sort of niggled, niggled slightly, there's also actually, and this is something which is in the original comic book, which always, I always, always got me a little bit, which is the duel between Lucifer and Dream, right? Um, the way they do it kind of reminds me of kids in the playground going, well, I'm a robot and I've got laser eyes. What if you're a robot with laser eyes? I'm the universe. Do you know what I mean? And it kind of like that sort of, that sort of thing of like, well, if you're the universe, 
I'm the uh, I'm the NC universe kind of a thing, and 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 and, I, and that is in the comics. So so fair play for them to keeping it and playing around with it. But watching it, actually seeing it visualized as beautifully as it was done, don't get me wrong, every like it was all wonderfully mounted. But I couldn't help just like sitting there going, yeah, okay, someone's going to turn into a laser beam robot or something. So um... <laughs> I would be up for that. My my nephew yeah. loves robots. He'd be he'd be well up for that. Um, my my issue with that was obviously it it wasn't Lucifer in the comics. It was one of the Lords of Hell, of course. Cause um, but they've met. But they've made Lucifer more of a a direct antagonist, and and that I, that idea of being manipulated uh, by Lucifer into that fight was quite cool. And sort of Lucifer going, oh well, if 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 my if my Duke of Hell wants me. To act as champion, I guess I have to. What a shame! Bring me my armor. Oh, it's already here. Wonderful. <laughs> you know, um, I, I thought that was that was nicely done, and I am very much hoping uh, for a sort of we we saw it hinted at here. This is not a spoiler that isn't in the show, but there's a hint of Lucifer's revenge next season, which is extremely creative and which for which I cannot wait. <laughs> it's like you guys already know all of the things. It's so funny, um, but yeah, so no, when. <laughs> When you cast Gwendolyn Christie, you use Gwendolyn Christie, and she's not in it as much as you might expect, at least as I expected uh, going into this. Uh, so I didn't mind that uh, that fight got shifted to her, and she, of course, knocked it out of the park. Really good I casting. love that they are getting so many great actors for small roles. You know, we, we've got this great part, but it's only for two episodes. Let's get David Thewlis. You know, uh, let's get Charles Dance. Let's get Gwendolyn Christie. This is an embarrassment of riches, and I am here for it. And Stephen Fry as Gilbert, wonderful, yes, yes. superb casting, absolutely. Yeah. Every time he said something wise, I got a bit teary. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, oh, he's talking so- about humans. <laughs> we're, we're talking about casting. We're talking about wisdom, but we haven't mentioned the person. When it comes to that, that embodies both of those things. That's Kirby Howard Baptiste. Oh yeah, as Death in Episode Six. Because wow, um, it's such a profound episode of television. It really made. I think I, I texted you afterwards, uh, and like Death really makes you think. Um, <laughs> I, I had to. As one of those, you couldn't just go on to the next episode after that. It had to. It really did stick with me. You had to think about it for a while and let it marinate because it was so well done. Um, and Kirby Howard-Baptiste, she's just so empathetic in that role. And honestly, you need that episode at that point in the show. Because up until that point, for good reason, Death has been a bit standoffish. He's a bit pissed off at humanity because he's been in prison for you now 100 years. He's, a little, he's, he's trying to figure out what his purpose is now that he's got all his gear back. Because... Yes, you can just, you know, go back to the way it was, but, you know, it's about evolving. It's about how you change. It's about how you make it better. And because death is the one to help him along that journey, it helps us as a viewer, at least for a new viewer, connect with death, connect with death more. Um, not to connect with dream more. I'm getting confused. Um, so, so yeah, that, that was really well done. I, I totally agree. And I think you need that episode where it is as well, because episode five is so bleak and horrific and just yeah horrible um so it was really it was quite funny because i was really worried sorry just going to do do the watching things with my kids bit for a moment so so <laughs> watching with my son max and me and me, me me and me and lucy had big discussions about yeah episode five that's the one because we'd pre-watched it that's the one should he should he and so in the end i just thought tell you what we're going to watch episode five see how you go right if you get through it, we're going to watch episode six immediately afterwards. It's going to be, do you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's the lovely warm-hearted dessert after the uh, bitter meal. That's <laughs> kind of a thing. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. And I think for anyone, you know, even if you're not binge watching, even if you're watching separately, to have that come in the, in the you know, the emotional continuity afterwards is perfect. And, and again, I just got to, you know, again, just to, just to be cheesy about it, I've seen that episode. Actually, I've seen the first half of that episode four times now. Uh, and honestly, every time I've blubbed, I've just blubbed. It's just, 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 I can't help it's it. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely beautiful. And, and yeah, um, she 
is perfect casting. She just just nails exactly what that character needs to be, which is your friend at the end. That's all she needs to be. But it's it's she- warmth, it's warmth, it's empathy, it's also authority. I think and presence. I think you need all of that, and she has the whole package. She's absolutely fantastic. And that's not to say that the second half of the episode you know, doesn't <laughs> That in itself is just such beautiful storytelling. You got this guy, Hob Gadling, given the gift of immortality and dream learning about friendship uh, with that character. Um, it's just so beautifully done. I love the way that they tell the story every hundred years. Was it every hundred years? Every hundred yeah. years, yeah. Yeah. Every hundred years, we're going to meet up. We're going to reconnect. You're going to tell me what you've been up to. You're going to ask, have, have you had enough living yet? Um, and he hasn't. He's, there's always something more for him to live for. I love that. Because normally, and, you know, in a sense, I get sort of why other, many other adaptations have done this, but normally immortality in media is presented as a bad thing um to to see the the nice side of it the hopeful side of it in this show was really well done mm, it really was that's um ferdinand kingsley as well who's ben kingsley's son and uh, a really fine actor in his own right um while we're speaking of death i have i have some questions from from listeners and uh one comes from at london underscore phil 09 hk phil who uh, hasn't read the comics and says, what's the deal with the different Endless? Uh, how many are there and why are they so dysfunctional? Is anyone in charge of them at all? So we have established there are seven of them. They are uh, dest- in order of age, Destiny, Death, Dream, Desire, Despair, The Prodigal and Delirium, who was once Delight. Um, but yeah, wh- what, what is their deal, Dan? <laughs> what is their deal? <laughs> well, they all begin with D, and and as a as a whole, I would say the family uh, as a whole should begin with D and just be called dysfunctional. Um, uh, <laughs> no. So they're not they're not gods, are they? They're not gods. They don't need belief no. to sustain. They no one needs to believe in them. Uh, they are the uh, the 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 guardians is not quite the creators of. Um, Every aspect of human existence, which just happens to be divided up in such a way that it begins with D. Um, and no one is in charge of them. Technically speaking, you could say Destiny's kind of the, he's the biggest brother. So Destiny's the kind of one that they will defer to and no one messes around with Destiny. Uh, oh, that's not true. But anyway, I'll leave that there. Someone does mess around with destiny, but um, that's not a big thing. Um, so yeah, they're, they're kind of, and you, 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 I think it's because it's an interesting thing because when Heinberg uh, and Gaiman and Goya were pitching this, they reduced it down to being a family story. They they reduced it to saying it's a story about a, a squabbling family, it's a story about a dysfunctional family, except the family happens to be immensely powerful cosmic beings. Um, and and I, I, think, I think that's kind of not really what it's all about entirely, but if you wanted to boil it down, that's a good thing to boil it down to. Um, and they've all got their own personalities and everything. But you kind of, it makes sense, right? It makes sense mm. that desire and dream would be at loggerheads, right? Because don't, don't dreams come from desire? But then again, don't desires come from dreams? Desire could argue that dreams should be subservient to them. Uh, despair as well with nightmares, you know, the other side of that. And they are twins, by the way, so they're technically the same age, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's, so what is the deal with, I think, don't overthink it too much is what I'm saying, right? Just accept <laughs> the fact that there are, there are gods. There is the creator in, in the game and verse. So you do, you do have deities. There are Norse gods and Egyptian gods and uh, African gods and all kinds of gods. Then there is the creator who resides over the silver city, which I guess is another way of saying heaven. So you do have God, you do have the devil. But then aside from all that and, and all the people and aliens and monsters and things on what I like to call the prime material plane because I play Dungeons and Dragons, uh, is the endless. <laughs> Nerd. And they're a family and they just have arguments with each other. Yeah. I, I was I, I've been thinking about this recently and I I don't know if I've thought this all the way through, but it feels to me in a very strange way that dream shapes all the younger endless. That all of them are to some degree shaped by the existence of dreams. 
and I haven't quite thought this through as a full theory yet, but I feel like there's something there. Anyway, we'll discuss that when we can discuss who the prodigal is in a few seasons' time. But do you I know what like I mean? Like, that. I feel like I destiny like and that. death are what they are. Everyone else is kind of shaped by dreams. So, so maybe it's because we're seeing things from dreams' point of view that it seems that way. But, but yeah, it feels that way to me. Anyway, uh, yeah, th- th- it, th- they are a dysfunctional family. But I, I do feel in the end, this is going to be specifically dreams story about dreams place in the existence. Um, if if this if this follows the books and tells the epic story that the books do, so I'm. I'm so hyped. It I'm will. really very it hyped will. for all of this, aren't we all? Yeah, um, here's yeah. a question from another listener uh, on Twitter. At Gurson, Chris Hammond uh, says, I really enjoyed the show. Thought at its best, it reminded me of Channel 4's Utopia. Interesting. At its worst, it felt a little Doctor Who. Harsh, but I see where you're coming from. Um, but why did every episode feel like I'd missed an episode before? Was this by design? Was it meant to be disorienting and dreamlike? And that, I think, is an interesting thing, because this is something that the comic does as well, where it will just tell a new story and you will have to pick it up and figure out what the heck is happening. And it will, by the way, tell stories that are set through time. We've seen a little bit bit of that with Hob Gadling. Um, But we're going to go on some timey-wimey adventure stuff, not in the sense of time travel per se, but in the sense of telling stories from dreams past, from the future, etc. That's really interesting. I. For the first six episodes, I didn't really think that. Like, episode six maybe feels like a totally new story. But again, as we've discussed, it it feels like we need uh, that episode where it comes for the character development, if not for the story momentum. And it feels like that episode was therefore necessary. From episode seven... That does feel like we've missed a couple of things in between because they're introducing a whole bunch of new characters. Um, it's almost like you're opening a new volume of the comic that uh, they're now adapting. So on that level, I get it. But for the first six, given that we are so clued into Dream's quest of get the gear back, rebuild the world, that felt like it was following on from one from each other. I didn't feel any gaps in the storytelling there. It's an, it's an interesting point. I, I, again, I, I am just fascinated by the way people who haven't read the comics will react to it and respond to it and, and, and what they draw from it. So I, I, that's a very interesting perspective, which I don't think I could possibly have because of my familiarity with the material. But I am kind of thinking back again to my first interactions with the material in comic book form. And there were, there are, Gaiman does do that. So there is, between two of the big storylines, or rather, at the start of one of the big storylines, you discover that Dream has had another girlfriend, right? And he's had a few. Um, He's had another girlfriend, but they don't say who that character is. And you don't see anything of the relationship. You only see the end of the, what, what happens, what, you know, because they're always in a bad mood. It's like raining in the dreaming or something everywhere. And like, <laughs> he's a bad mood because she's left him. She's walked out on him. And it's like, but who did I? And I, you know, you go back to the previous issues. There's nothing there. It's like, who, what are they talking about? And it's only later, like loads later, like ages and ages later that you find out who their girlfriend was. And it's like, okay, why did he do that? And I haven't, ever, I haven't asked him. And actually, now I'm thinking about it, I'd love to ask him. But I only think <laughs> maybe, maybe, again, it's just, it's, it's that point, the, the, the question asker whose name I've already forgotten because I'm terrible, sorry. Uh, it's maybe the, that point about maybe it does, having that sense of being in a dream and you're kind of like, dreams are all about, they are everything, the, that exact second you're in is all there is, right? There's no future, there's no past, to, to, uh, to misquote the Spice Girls. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's that it's that moment that you're in, um, and there's nothing else. So I I just guess maybe it's that's it's partly that, and 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 they are ultimately stories about storytelling and knowing which stories to tell and which stories not to tell, and perhaps the stories that you choose not to tell are telling in themselves in the way that they might influence the stories that you are telling, and the riddle endeth. <laughs> <laughs> deep. That was very deep, but I agree. Yeah, yeah I think it, I think it is. 
a certain degree of, of dream logic, uh, if you'll forgive the pun, does kind of apply. Um, slightly more grounded question next from at Dr. Tommy T25. Um, do you think episode five, that's the diner episode, of course, uh, should have been more graphic and extreme like the comic? Or uh, do we think it was right that they held at least some restraint? So for those who haven't read the comic, yes, the diner scene is even more disturbing in the comic uh, to a degree where I'm not sure I want to see that in live action personally. So I'm, I'm quite happy with the, the level of restraint they showed. But what do you guys think? Um, I think I, I think if they'd gone with the comic, it would have been like Michael Haneke crossed with David Lynch, uh, crossed with Gaspar Noé. Um, I, I just think it would have been too much. It would have been too much. And, and where they went with it was dark enough. So, yeah, I, I, I think they made the right choice there. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree mostly. Like the uh, hands thing, for instance, is a graphic that really sticks with me. Um, and I think on oh no, the, the episode beforehand is when he's using the amulet and turning people inside out, and that is another graphic thing that has stuck with me. Um, I think they could have taken the um, sexual aspect of that episode a little bit further um, than, wow, than they do. Wow, pervert. <laughs> yeah, go watch <laughs> House saying, of the Dragon, you- dude. <laughs> you got like on the one hand you know the physical violence being very graphic in your face and then on the other hand you got that sexual violence and you know very in the the background and not nearly as graphic as you could go so i think they could have done more with that but in the in the other senses i think they did an okay job it's it's i think that just goes to you know um our very very hypocritical and weird uh reactions to sex versus violence um you know, gore but no bush, if you will, being the rule when it comes to raiding these things. Uh, and I think, I feel like that, that that scene is a little bit of a, you know, example of that again. Um, but yeah, it, that's that's fair to note the disparity in treatment of sex and violence. And, and it wasn't, to be clear, it's not obviously sexual violence per se in the comics. It's, they are under the influence, certainly, of the ring, which does take away consent, but they are not, it is not, you know, portrayed as sexual violence as we would typically understand it. God, that's a really complicated thing to draw out and possibly a distinction I I like your little Freudian slip almost there of calling the ruby the ring, which is interesting. Oh no. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, no, is, no fair guessing is, what else I've like, been watching this John, week. <laughs> John, D, John D is Gollum, the ruby is the ring, you know, it's, it's and Morpheus is clearly uh, Sauron. So there we go. Uh, a, fit, a volcano. Yeah, he is, yeah, he is a volcano. <laughs> yeah, he is Mount Doom and yeah. Sauron all rolled into one. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> that guy gets actually, around. Um, before, Helen, may I ask, may I make a request? Yes. May I make a request? Please. Before, we, I know obviously the questions are cool, but I, I kind of really feel like almost perhaps appropriately, given the, 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 the way it's, the, the comics are written and the, and the show plays out, I don't think we maybe need to talk a little bit about Dream and Tom Sturridge. I just feel yes, yeah. Do. Well, I was like, yeah, the, I was going. Yeah. yeah, yeah, amazing. Well, I'll shut up. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll stop Dan explaining the podcast to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was. I was going to ask about because we talked about um, Kirby. We've talked about a, a couple of other characters, but the, the casting I think is is a is a really interesting job for this show because you are casting non-human anthropomorphic personifications uh, in many cases. It's a difficult, difficult job, starting with Dream. Now, I am on record as saying that my, my, my choice for Dream casting, my Dream casting, if you will, for Dream, <laughs> um, what is actually exactly what Tom Hiddleston did in Only Lovers Left Alive. <laughs> exactly that. He just needs slightly more hair gel and a longer coat. Um, th- but... Tom Sturridge, as it turns out, I am also willing to accept. I think he did a magnificent job. What do you think? I, I you think, dare. I think you dare that talk about dream last. How dare you? No. <laughs> he has been practicing his dream voice. I'm just going to come over with it. He's been practicing his dream voice. It's it's t- it was a tough one because in the comics, Dream talks in uh, negative, like he he's he's white on black, so the speech bubbles are black and wibbly. And all the text is in white, and it's just like how 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 do you make that voice? What is that voice? 
and also his eyes again are kind of the the whites are, the whites are black and and where the pupils would be a little sort of stars a little little pinpoints of white so so the fact that they humanized him i think was the right thing to do to not give him a an effectsy voice and to not give him effectsy eyes i thought i thought that was all really smart and i think i mean obviously in the comic books his appearance changes quite a bit even though he looks essentially the same but different artists have different versions of him sometimes he looks more like an older man sometimes he's a younger man but i think going with uh Sturridge, who is i would probably say on the younger end of the spectrum um i don't know how old he is exactly i haven't looked it up but um he doesn't have any gray hairs as far as i can see uh so he's on the under end of the spectrum and and I think he looks exactly right in terms of cheekbones. <laughs> and, Very, and, important. And, Very important. And pu- pulling, off, pulling off the goth, the, the gothness, which, which, you know, they could have got rid of because it was obviously a product of its time in a sense. Uh, but no, the most important thing is, is, is and I think, I think I, this isn't my line. I think this is Heinberg possibly saying that, um, or Gaiman, I can't remember which one of the two, but they said that he needed to be vulnerable without being human, right? So you you needed to sympathise with him without him actually ever turning into it like, hey, I'm just a guy, I'm a person. And and I think Sturridge managed to walk that line. And I I and I wasn't sure about him at first because I'm not really that familiar with his work. But I think the fact that I wasn't that familiar with his work really helped. I think if Hiddleston had been in the role. I'd have kept thinking, "What's Loki up to?" I just, you know, even though Hiddleston's a great actor, he's and he can play good lots enough. Of people, he's good enough. He's good he, enough. He I, you, he's, that would have lasted like half an episode. Nah, I don't know. And if it had been whatever, who was the other person they talked about? Benedict Cumberbatch. I'd have been like, "What's Doctor Strange up oh, no. to?" So, um, uh, and I think another person that got mentioned in the past was Johnny Depp. So let's not talk about that. Um, but because um, Edward Scissorhands, whatever. Um, but. Sturridge, again, just kind of didn't come from nowhere, but he came from relatively nowhere. Sorry, Tom. And and absolutely owned it. I think absolutely owned it. I, I can't imagine anyone else playing it now, and I can't wait to see more, more from him. And when he turned up in Calliope, I was like, yay, he's back. Here he is. I like this. I want more of him. So there you go. Yeah. He yeah. was in A Dream of Cats as well. He was just yeah. in he cat was. form. Just the voice. <laughs> Just, just, yeah. I can't do it. No. How do you do it? I'm on. Just, just the voice. No, that's, I'm, no, I'm going into Batman. I can't do like it. This. He sort of talks. Very like, like, Sort of talks like this. No, I'm getting a bit <laughs> sleepy now. That's not right. But, I'm more like Eeyore now. You are like Eeyore, but, yeah. I am. Everyone hates me. What have I started? Um, <laughs> now, I agree like it's, he does a really good job in a very difficult role because of his look and his demeanor and his voice a lot of the acting is very subtle and um, in terms of the different inflections that he puts on different uh, on things at times so he's got to be arrogant he's going to be snarky and um, he's going to be detached but as he very gently warms to humanity and through the interactions that he has with uh, people like Lucienne um, and Death. But Lucienne isn't isn't human. Death isn't human, obviously. Yes. No, the, the, the interaction that he has with his friends and with the other people in the show. Okay. Um, he gets to, you know, against very, very subtle. But <laughs> you guys Sorry. are so you'll find Luc- and, uh, Lucienne isn't human. You'll find she's actually... Um, uh, Actually, we don't even know who Lucienne is. That's a good question. Actually, we don't really what know. She... I th- we think fairy, yeah. I think fairy but yeah. I don't I know I think for fairy, sure. one yeah. of the fairy folk, maybe yeah. once. Anyway, sorry, Alan, yeah. carry on. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you, Dan. Um, but, yeah, now I was just going to say, because a lot of the work is subtle, the bigger emotions have a bigger impact. Like, a smile from Dream yeah. means, like, <laughs> a huge, like, you know, big hug from anybody else. And... That's one of the reasons why the end of episode six, when he goes back to Hobgadling and proclaims his friendship and says all these things, it's a really big deal and it hits all the harder because of the general demeanour of Dream. And it's really, and, really and, well played. And they do have this sort of starry eyes at key moments, you know, where, so at the end of episode one, when he escapes and he's sort of sitting in judgment on Alex, he, there is that moment where he sort of steps out of the shadows and I thought that was beautifully done. So they have that sort of in their toolkit 
to pull out when he's at his most threatening, when he's at his most inhuman, and and then they don't they can kind of dial it back when he's actually, as you say, interacting with personages uh, around him. I also love love love. Vivienne Achimpong as Lucien. So in the comics, it's Lucien. It's it's a male character, but very similar looking, tall, slim, uh, perfectly dressed, very upright, um, and and has a little bit of that same role. They've actually bumped it up a little bit again to give Dream more of a sounding board and more of a you know an outer monologue, <laughs> frankly, um, someone to actually spar with a little bit in those scenes. And but I just think their relationship is fantastic. I think she's wonderful, and and they just clearly have a really great chemistry together. So I'm I'm loving that as well. I think those kind of changes, just just taking a character up a notch. Um, you know, bringing a character in a little bit more often than we saw in the comics gives this much more of a sense of cohesion, much more of a through line um, than maybe it had in the comics. And I think that's going to help with, you know, the question we had about things feeling disconnected. They're going to feel disconnected. There are going to be one more of these kind of one-off adventures as we go, but we're going to have those characters as a through line running through it. Cain and Abel will be back. The, the three fates will be back. Um, Vivienne will be back. You know, sorry, Lucienne, Vivienne as Lucienne will be back. Uh, obviously, the other Endless will be back. And we're going to get to see the ones we haven't met yet, especially Delirium. I'm so Yay! hyped. I'm so hyped for Delirium. You have no idea. I'm more hyped for the Borgel Rantipole, Helen. Come on. The Borgel Rantipole. <laughs> Bring on the I'm Borgel Rantipole. I'm sorry, also sorry, ex- I'm not- excited for them. <laughs> The gods of order and chaos, Dan. The gods of order and chaos. Ah, yes. And and then and then I don't know. Are they going to do Odin and Loki and Thor? I mean, oh, yeah. are they? Or oh, do you yeah. think they're still going to do you those? You gotta. Yeah. Surely you have to. Yeah. So I should get in Tom Hiddleston to play Loki. <laughs> I just want to apologise to anybody uh, who I've done this to in the past. If <laughs> they feel like oh, I feel yeah. now listening yeah. to these two. Go on and on about comics. How does it feel uh, now, I, I, I understand. <laughs> I was just going to say another person who I hope will be back uh, because I loved her. And more importantly, I loved the jacket that she's wearing. Jenna <laughs> Coleman as Joanna Constantine. Mm. Uh, I think she's great. Really, well, really great. A Joanna Constantine will certainly be back. Constantine? Okay. I'm, yeah. I've, I've Constantine. mixed myself up now. I don't know which one we're doing. <laughs> it's actually, yeah, it is. It is. It was funny. I, I read a few places that saying that the, 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 the Constantine episode made people wish for a spin-off with her. And I'm like, okay, that's an interesting idea, but there's already been a show called Constantine slash Constantine, which, you know, because that character, and, and obviously a movie too, that character already exists. But now like the idea as a potential idea that they could now redo that, but with her, is really fascinating to me. <laughs> I, mean, I think if you can have like five Batmans and five Jokers, some some of yeah. them running around at the same time, you can have another Constantine show, it, movie, whatever at the same time. Also, I, I just thought she got the energy of that character so well. I I didn't expect it. I wasn't particularly hyped about her casting. I like her as an actress. I think she's good, but like I was like, all right, fine, they're gender swapping Constantine, cool, I guess, whatever. Um but then she just had the attitude down pat. I, I thought she had the energy, the kind of swagger um, and the kind of, you know, swagger, but with an element of, oh, shit, what the fuck is happening at the same time? You know, there was there was real kind of uh, colour and texture to her her performance, which I thought was was great. I, I would I would kind of be open to discussions of more of that character. Yeah. And a great double little double act with with Sturridge as well. I thought the scene where they're at the door. The, where they're, they're go, she's about to go up into the apartment and find the sand. The, that scene at the door, I just love that. Just like the timing between the two of them was just right. They was, and it's such, it's almost a shame that the character, that character, well, I don't want to upset anyone, but that character doesn't really interact with Dream again much, at least in no. in the original comic books. In, at least in the comics, yeah. That character doesn't. So, so it's a bit of a shame because actually it was really great to watch and it was really enjoyable. So I don't know, maybe if it was just that one time. Actually, if we're talking about scenes that were slightly softened for TV, in some ways more surprising to me than the diner scene being softened was that scene. When they go into the house to get the sandbag in the book, that is some messed up shit right there. That is a really disturbing, 
really twisted scene. And and I think that was actually, yeah, toned down a little bit for for the TV. So basically in the in the comic book, uh, there are a couple of other people in the house who have basically been absorbed by it as well and oh, have been kind of eaten up by it. And and so that's all kind of going on. And so it's very, very gnarly indeed. And again, really disturbing. So so yeah, that was that was actually, if anything, the toned down version, guys. I guess you're welcome. I also very much enjoyed just from a Southeast London point of view, seeing the painted hole in Greenwich, as is traditional. Uh, if you want to go and see Cain and Abel's house, that is at Scotney, I think it's Scotney Castle, it's called, which is just south of London. Very nice day trip, National Trust owned. Um, and when Dream is putting the world back together with Matthew, who we haven't talked about, Matthew the Raven, um, after after John B's uh, depredations, I'm pretty sure he's standing outside Canary Wharf. There you go. <laughs> yeah. If you want to do a little dream walking tour, there are your stops. Matthew the Raven was one of my iffy bits with this with this show, actually, because what I like, I, I like oh, him as a character. Dare you, sir? Let me explain before you blow up at me, Dan. Um, I like him as a character. I like his uh, sort of uh, back and forth with Dream. I just couldn't not hear Patton Oswalt every time he spoke. Well, that's because that, it was uh, Pat Oswalt doing the yeah, voice. That would be I know, <laughs> but like when 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 you know when the voice acting is really really good, you disassociate yourself from the actor voicing uh, them, and I couldn't do that with Pat and Oswalt. Really, even Kevin Conroy, you don't hear Kevin Conroy, no, all I your hear beloved is Kenry, Kevin. All Conroy. I hear is the Dark Knight <laughs> of Gotham because he's that good. Um, but yeah, with Patton Oswalt, even with like That's... you know Mark Hamill, I forget the character that he plays, but Pumpkin I was Hamill. able to like Merv, yeah, uh, yeah. Merv. I was able to, you know, it didn't. It, it clicked with me at some point that yes, it was Mark Hamill, but I wasn't actively thinking that as he was speaking while I was watching the show. With Patton Oswalt, I wasn't able to do that. But but Fair but. Fair enough. Matthew's but, but, an old character it, anyway. It's it's more than the voice, and I think the way they pulled it off with a mixture of whatever CG uh, animatronic and real ravens was just seamless and flawless and amazing. Like the, the performance by that character, as I say, through those combination of factors with Patton Oswalt's voice, I just thought was astonishing. Um, and actually, while we're talking about ravens, shout out to Jessamy. Oh my yes. god! That sequence that completely invented, by the way, completely invented for the show. But that whole sequence, and again, I'd love to have been anyone watching it for the first time, going, "The, the Raven's going to get him out. His little Raven's friend's going to get him out." And then splat! You know, that's mm. just you know yeah. that was that was harsh uh, in a brilliant way. That was heartbreaking. Yeah. I, I speaking of sort of side characters, I was delighted to see Goldie the gargoyle. Um, <laughs> Who the the baby gargoyle who is just the cutest and and uh, the number one cuddly toy I would like from from the Sandman comics. Number two is of course the baby <laughs> endless. You know the cute endless who are in that little. Yeah, I've anyway, seen those. Um, yeah. But yeah, Goldie the gargoyle is is very 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 adorable and uh, I really liked seeing that. Um, we haven't we haven't met the, all of the the residents of the Dreaming yet, but I'm also I also really appreciate that they've got Dreams gatekeepers. So he has the Griffin, the Dragon, and the Winged Horse guarding his his gates. Even in the Dream of Cats, you see them there as well outside the cave. And uh, and I really like that they've they've kept that kind of touch, that kind of detail. They also have the gates of Horn, isn't it? Horn and Bone, um, Ivory and Bone, Ivory and Horn. The gates I, I, of the dream also. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the the two one one allows only true dreams and the other one doesn't. It's a whole thing. Um but that <laughs> that detail is is all there and I'm loving it. I know, so, and again it was it was lovely to uh, see Martin Tenbones as well. Um uh, yes. who who actually pops up in the very first episode. You you see him very briefly for a moment riding on a ship going under the bridge. Sitting at the standing at the prow of the ship, and then he pops up later, obviously in Barbie's dream, uh, voiced by Lenny Henry. Um, and I love him, and the reason I love him is because of something that we haven't seen yet. So <laughs> let's let's look forward we'll to that. Mm. The porpentine will come, Dan. Fear not. Yes, come on, you have bring on the porpentine and the bogle Rantipole. <laughs> In that order, no, yeah, Paul Pinson first, Borgel, Rancy Paul second. Otherwise, they'll just mess it up. 
Heinberg, are you listening? If the Borgel Rantipole is not in Sandman, you're in trouble, dude. Okay. We, we, we need season two just so we can get another hour of this. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, because I'm me, uh, we have to talk about David Buckley's score a little bit because it is really, really good. Um, he's a composer that I first became aware of because he did some work on a video game, which I love, Batman Arkham Knight. Um, so that's where I first heard his name, but he is just fantastic in this. It's a mixture of haunting and hopeful, and it's a very versatile score, which it needs to be because this this show is covering so many tones. And I've written down some of my favorite tracks. Um, Jessamy's Flight is one of them. Uh, oh. Really, really great. Uh, a Kind Word and a Friendly Face might be my favorite track in the entire thing. Uh, really beautifully done. And then couple more even a nightmare can dream and this is fiddler's green i think this is fiddler's green plays when uh stephen fry goes back to the dreaming and you know there's, becomes there's no a place a again yeah yeah beautiful beautifully done really beautiful music and uh yeah can't wait to hear more from him uh in season two hopefully and also another stuff yeah i i absolutely uh love the score as well and actually my musical observation amon you'll like this okay is that the, 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 the Sandman theme, right, is an mm-hmm. epic lullaby. Ooh. Yeah, the melody is a That's lullaby, a good line. but Buckley makes it epic. So it's an epic lullaby, this is, which could this be the description of the entire show. Whoa. Bring That's in deep. the deepness, Dan. <laughs> Well, listen, oh, we're running out of time, but uh, before we go, I do want to ask you both uh, for your favorite. Well, let me ask Dan first for your favourite change from the comic books to the screen. What do you think is is the the best change that you've seen in this season? Okay, is this so? Is this is this casting or is this plot? Is this story? Are we talking about? I'm thinking more story, or, or but it... if it's but if it's casting, I'm very happy with that as well. I'm not I'm no, not okay. prescriptive. Uh, story, story. The, the thing that springs to mind. And maybe it's springing to mind. I did talk about the John D thing earlier, but the thing that springs to mind is because we haven't really talked about him, which is a shame. Uh, I know we're out of time, but we can't talk about everything because it's so expansive. But I think, and you mentioned it earlier, Helen, is bringing in the Corinthian from the start. And in a matter of fact, I actually, and this is my note, and it's too late because they've already made it and it's been very successful, but my note would have been not to have a prologue at the start of the first episode, right? But to go straight in there with Charles Dance trying to summon death, right? And you're like, what's going on? And he's trying to summon death. And then this thing lands in front of him. And it's this guy in a weird helmet. And what's going on here? You don't know. And you only, it's that moment when the Corinthian turns up, this mystery guy in a boat of hat and sunglasses, and says, you've got the Lord of Dreams, et cetera, et cetera, that we find out if you've never seen it or read it before. So, and I thought it would have been really cool to have the Corinthian be the person who explains everything in a way to do the expedition at the start and go but they did they didn't take my note which i never gave them um so, um, so weird. yeah i know i didn't think it was appropriate really to, to give them that note like while i was interviewing them for a feature so um but anyway that's what i would have done um but no and i thought boyd holbrook, holbrook was absolutely fantastic and not much of a change because because like dream they've cast him to look very much like the character in the comic book but to bring him in earlier and to make him a, a an Asian provocateur, you know, to, to he's constantly trying to work against Dream in parallel to Desire. I thought was 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 a really smart move. End of answer. Okay, that was going to be my answer as well. You absolute bastard. Oh, uh, but, sorry. Uh, you should have you should have <laughs> answered I, your own question. First I should have answered my own me. question first. This was a this was a, a, a fundamental error. Um, no, I will I I will say then my my second favorite, if you like, was probably um, making Lucienne a bigger role and making Lucienne dreams uh, confidant for all the reasons I've I've already given. But I think it works brilliantly to have him have someone in the dreaming who can question him and who could talk to him seriously about stuff because I think their relationship is great. I'm on. Now, having read the comics afterwards, are there any changes that stuck out to you that we haven't mentioned? I'm still reading, uh, okay. to clarify. Uh, and I don't think I've actually read the comic that episode 11 um, is adapting. But I have read sort of the responses to that. It's an episode that I really like. I haven't had uh, much time to talk about it today. But from what I've read, 
they make a number of really smart changes to that story because in the comics, they depict sort of a raping of sorts of Calliope to get her gift. The way in which they depict that in this show, in this episode, I think is really, really smart. As, you know, <laughs> as tasteful as a tasteless act can be depicted on screen, I think, because they basically just um, uh, have it, like we see him going into the room, then the next shot we see of him is him obviously having obtained the gift with like a scar on his cheeks, but that violence has taken place, but we haven't actually seen it and it's still impactful. We still get what's happened. That sort of thing, bringing it into a contemporary sort of setting, updating it in a way that reflects what the world, how the world has changed, I think is really, really smart. And if it continues to do that, uh, yeah, it'll be be good for the show. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, but I'll that's a massive downer. To, to, that, to that effect, um, there's an article on IGN, I think, by Amelia Emberwing, which gets into more detail on that, which I think is really well done. Yes, no, it's absolutely right. You don't need to see graphic uh, sexual violence to know that something bad has occurred there. And Arthur Darville also in that in that episode is great. And also, let's just get Derek Jacobi in for like three scenes, yeah, because why not? I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches this show. So, um, well, look, I think we're all very much on the positive side. We are very much looking forward to hopefully a season two. I think that the signs are looking good. And with that, I'm afraid I must bid farewell to serial podcaster, serial with a C. Amon Warman. Peace be unto you, Helen O'Hara. Peace be unto you, Dan Jolin. I'm going back to my realm now. Goodbye. Okay. Yes. Uh, we do have to mind <laughs> up that, Amon. Yes. Thank you for, for talking more slowly than any human has ever talked. Uh, thanks as well to the Corintha Dan. Dan Jolin. <sighs> Good night. God's bless and sweet dream. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me, the O'Hara Mancer. Um, I will be off to try and think up some more names for Dream of the Endless. <laughs> Thank you guys for joining us and see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>